0: While they're doing that, let me invite you to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 20. Acts 20, um, and we're going to continue our series in Acts. I think after today we have four sermons left to finish the book of Acts, um, which is pretty good for us, which means that we have walked through the book of Acts in a year. I think we started this last January. This will take us all the way almost up to Advent, um, And uh, some really good things here at the end of that. Before I jump in, just uh, as a reminder for those who have been with us a while, and as a reminder or introduction to those of uh, you who are new here, we really try to live out three identities um, as a church um, of a family of disciples and of missionaries. And these are identities that we came up with. These are things that are filled through the pages of Scripture. You certainly see in the book of Acts. You're certainly going to see these identities even today. Um, That we're disciples, that we're growing into the likeness of Jesus, that none of us have uh, reached the uh, place of maturity yet. Hopefully we are maturing, but we're not quite there yet, so we are maturing um, as disciples, sitting under the authority of God's word, that we're family, that this is meant to be done in biblical community, and that ultimately we're missionaries. Again, you're going to see all three of these today. Um, <clears throat> Acts 20 uh, starts out, and we're going to kind of with just uh, a roll call of the end of uh, Paul's uh, missionary journey, his third missionary journey. We're going to see a few more places he stops. Again, this, the author of Acts is Luke, who is one of Paul's travel companions. Um, there's this really unique story about uh, Paul preaching so long that a man fell asleep and fell out of a third-story window. Um, which, you know, is just is just great joy to my heart that uh, I've never killed anyone while preaching before. Um, and if I did, I hope I would be able to raise him from the dead as Paul did. Um, and then the text that we're going to get to here in uh, verse 17 If you don't mind, would you stand with me as we read uh, God's word together? Acts chapter 20, verse 17. Um, uh, These will be on the screen. I invite you to follow along with us either there or um, in your Bibles. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. This is Paul, speaking of Paul. And when they came to him, he said to them, "...except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not count my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again." Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. This is an amazing chapter, um, and I have a feeling that we're going to come back and get some more things out of this chapter even uh, next week. What I want to talk to you about today is really five marks of gospel community that we see here. and This is not an exhaustive list, that this is all there is, but there's at least five things, some we see in Paul's life, some we see in these, uh, his testimony of what's going on in this church in Ephesus, um, <clears throat> but pretty incredible Um, First, just a little context, what we know about uh, Ephesus. One, we know more about the church at Ephesus than really any other church. Uh, We've got uh, Acts 19 that talks about it. We've got this passage here that talks some about it. We know the whole entire book of um, Ephesians, the letter that Paul wrote to this church. We know that Paul spent at least three years here in this city teaching day and night in the hall of Tyrannus. He was forced out, if you remember in Acts 19 when this riot happened, started by uh, a man named Demetrius because so many people were becoming Christians that the trade of making idols in the, uh, in the likeness of the great Artemis, the false god that they worshipped, that uh, the sale was diminishing. This church was likely pastored by, uh, with, with Timothy next, Paul's son in the faith. He had some incredible help from Aquila and Priscilla. I think uh, Wesson talked a little bit about that last week. John the Beloved also, most scholars say, probably pastored after Timothy, Timothy this church. So uh, I don't know if you've ever been to one of those churches that has like the pictures of like the former pastors when you walk, have you seen those, these very distinguished people that I always thought that I would never fit, you know, they would have to like just put a drawing of me up, I couldn't, uh, I don't look that distinguished as all them. This, this church at Ephesus, can you imagine having, having Paul, uh, having Timothy, having John the Beloved, Uh, These people who wrote so much of the New Testament being the ones that pastored you. This is also the church through the power of the Spirit um, that changed the culture of the city of Ephesus. One of the most wicked cities of the Roman world. And they were changed completely because the gospel, as Jesus said, the kingdom of God is like a seed that's planted. We see more in Revelations 2. This is the, uh, the letter written to the church at Ephesus. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, this is the accolades, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those and called them, that have called themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. Some pretty incredible things, I preached the message on that several weeks ago, we won't go into the whole details, it goes on to say, but I have this thing against you, right, that you've lost your first love. But the point is that this was an incredible church and Paul's trying to remind them of a few really important things. Maybe you called in our just reading of the text, this is a very somber time. Paul's called these Ephesian elders to him and he's basically giving them kind of their marching orders of sorts. Some warning, some admonition, some encouragement as he says that you will not see my face again. He says in verse 18, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. Here as well as in other places, Paul is saying, imitate me as I imitate Christ again. uh, Lesson touched on some of those things even last week. Here's the first mark that I want us to look at, marks of true gospel community as Paul is teaching us. Let's look at verse 24. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the tasks the Lord Jesus has given to me. What is that task we might ask? The one of testifying to the good news of God's grace. The first mark is that, uh, the mark of uh, their lives of uh, following Jesus. Their lives were marked by following Jesus. Certainly Paul's life, certainly the church at Ephesus, certainly these leaders, and certainly any true church today is going to wrap the rhythms of their life around following Jesus. This verse has application both very personal to Paul, but also one that is applicable to us today to be ministers of reconciliation that he would talk about in his letter to Corinth, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. That is the role or application or marching orders that we see through the Great Commission on every one of our lives. Don't think that that task is just for the mature Christian, that following Jesus is just for those that have attained a certain level. If you call yourself a Christian in here, you are identifying yourself as one who follows Jesus. The Roman world would speak of those that followed Jesus, those that followed the way. The way of Jesus. These people's marks were radically reshaped by following the life and ministry of Jesus. Now following Jesus is just that. It means following him. When you follow someone, you're assuming that someone is leading and someone else is following now, I think we get that mixed up sometimes in the church, that we think that Jesus and I are kind of walking side by side and, um, and that we've got as much to say as to the direction of our life as Jesus says, or that our, our input should weigh as much as his input, and that is clearly wrong. Here's how Jesus talks about it in John 10. That he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out, and he goes on ahead of them, And his sheep follow him because they know his voice. You see clearly the call to us as disciples of Jesus or followers of Jesus is simply to follow him. My question to you is, where is Jesus leading you? What is Jesus leading you to do? What steps of obedience that require faith are sitting right in front of you today? What is he leading you to do? Now, you're not responsible to save the world. You're responsible to fill the assignment that Jesus has given to you. Now, there are really two ways that people often go wrong with this. The one is people assume that it's their responsibility to save the world, to fix their friends, to make sure their kids turn out right, to save the poor and the orphan, and they carry this weight on their shoulders Then no matter what they do is ever, ever enough. They're always worried. Other people never stop to even think that they've been given responsibilities by God. I think most of us fit in the second category, that we just live through life trying to be a good person and trying to, you know, give to the church and and, and say nice things about people and just be upright and good citizens. Never concerned with that God has an actual calling on your life, that he is created you and he has created good works for you to accomplish that he's designed you specifically to light up a corner of the world that is where the darkness remains and he's planted you in a neighborhood and in a vocation and on specific uh maybe kids soccer teams or in different networks that you live in he has placed you there as a proclaimer of the kingdom of god and he wants you to follow him not just his example in scripture but it, the holy spirit actually leads you Every day, in every situation, if you're in tune with the Holy Spirit, certainly there are things that are clearly revealed in God's Word, and, and He speaks to us through the Word, and we follow God in that way. But even the promptings of the Spirit, if you've ever heard the Spirit prompt you to say something, might be awkward in some, in some moments, or to pray for someone, the Holy Spirit leads and prompts, and that's part of what it means to follow Jesus real success is identifying what God has called you to do and being completely faithful in it to follow Jesus step by step are you following him not just the basic teachings of scripture as Hebrews talks about he says the author of Hebrews says you ought to be teachers by now but you can't even digest right the meat of God's word you're still addicted to the milk of it In the things that aren't necessarily comfortable, are you following Jesus? As a father, are you leading your home? Spiritually leading your home? As a mother, are you coming up with a plan with with your husband, to come up with a way that you're going to lead your kids. As a, as a husband or a wife, are you following Jesus? As a friend, are you following Jesus? As a witness, are you following Jesus? In your vocation, are you following Jesus? He has a lot to say about what we do and how we act and how we live. A church that doesn't follow Jesus is not really a church at all. It's some kind of social club. But a church that does follow Jesus has this foundational mark on it that people rearrange the rhythms of their life around the message and way of Jesus. We see that certainly here. Paul, what an incredible verse. Again in verse 24, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim He says this again in his church to uh, Philippi. What did he say? This one thing, forgetting what's behind, this one thing, I'm pressing toward this mark to complete the task the Lord Jesus has given to me. The second mark is their lives were marked with humility and tears. We see this in the example of Paul. We see it in many of his letters Look in verse 19, he says, I serve the Lord with great humility and with tears. In the midst of severe testing, maybe your translation says trials by the plots of my Jewish opponents. It's weird that these are his calling cards, humility, tears, and trials. When we think of successful Christian leaders We don't think of humility and tears and trials, do we? It's not typical. We want our leaders to be victorious and powerful and joyful. But Paul says, I'm a man of humility, trials, and tears. In fact, that word humility in verse 19 often translated as weaknesses was a common one in Greek, and it was always an insult if anyone called you this it was certainly not a commendation but an insult to you it meant low or defeated or weak but the word is used nearly 200 times in the bible and almost always as a virtue why does an insult outside the gospel become a virtue inside the gospel because Christian ministry is not about extraordinary men and women of great character, worthy to be praised, but it's about lives that point to a great Savior who can save the weakest and most broken and guilty of sinners. When you look at the testimony of Paul and any accolades that he would point to himself, again back to his letter to Philippi Philippians, he would say, I was a, a Jew of the Jews, right? A Pharisee of the Pharisees. And this long list of things that he could possibly boast in. And then he would say, but you know, I consider all of that as just nothing. Paul doesn't want to leave them with an example to admire, but a Savior to trust in. Tim Keller says it this way. I joked with Jason earlier today, I wonder if like Tim Keller's whole life is just quotable. Like everything he says at McDonald's, we're like scribbling down. A humble and weak person will show a crucified Savior better to a listener than a polished, pulled together expert. Because that's how it happened for us. We weren't saved by pulling ourselves together, but by admitting We were sinners and calling on the one who was pulled apart for us. Humility, tears, and trials, Paul mentions here, are how God ensures that we live in a way that points to him, not to us as the hero of this story. You look about the biblical examples across the Old Testament, and you look at Moses who goes in and says yes to the Lord even though that you know he's convinced that he won't be able to articulate it and Pharaoh's heart is hardened will not let the people go and this this whole thing happens with the plagues and the whole story right so that Moses didn't look like the hero God was the hero of Gideon and he had too many men you remember this story you got to get there's way too many and you got to get rid of them again and you got to get rid of them again and Now I just want you to take some trumpets and lanterns to war. Like, what what is that? It's so that Gideon wasn't the hero of the story. God was the hero. And many of you, you're walking in a very difficult and maybe dark place. And the outlook is bleak at best. That is one of the best places that we can be in because that's where God shines. Remember Paul's prayer, when he had the thorn of flesh, and he's asking God to remove it, and he goes, God, this thorn of flesh, we don't know what it is, but it's this messenger of Satan, sent by Satan to torment me, he says, and he is going to, he is going to battle in prayer that God remove this thing, and ultimately, what did, what did God say? No, my grace is sufficient. My power is going to be made perfect or seen best through your weakness. So Paul, go boast all the more in your weakness. It's almost this subversive nature of the kingdom of God. Like, don't give me a resume of all the things you do well. Just tell me all the things you really stink at. And, and through that weakness, God is going to be the hero. I can't tell you how many times, even Ashley and I talked this week, the staff and I have talked about this. I've had friends, ministry partners that are just walking through the most difficult time We've asked ourselves, is ministry supposed to be this hard? We planted covenant eight years ago. We had a little cush job as a youth pastor before this. I thought it was tough then. I had no idea what I was walking into. My pastor there in Dallas said, you'll see. You just think your job's hard now. You'll see. Can't tell you how many times Ashley and I have been I mean, hurt so deeply that we just thought we couldn't go on anymore. And we may have even said that verbally many times. God, I just don't think I can do this anymore. To which he would respond, okay, that's right where I want you. That the best leaders that God uses are the people who are broken, and who who aren't boasting in their strength, they're not flexing their muscles, they don't have resumes four and five pages long of all the things they can do, they've just become aware that they're weak and broken, and any ministry success is going to come on the dependence of Jesus through the Holy Spirit. Today, we say great religious leaders are people of power and triumph and positivity Happiness? Is it possible that the ones that God sees as great leaders and the ones that we see as great leaders are different? I feel like we're all going to be pretty surprised one day when we're at that great merits feast to see the leaders at the head of the table near Jesus are people we've never heard of. But they are people like Paul who served with great humility and with tears and through trials. Eugene Peterson said it this way, most ministry work takes place in obscurity, deciphering grace in the shadows, searching out meaning in a difficult text, blowing on the embers of a hard-used life. This is hard work and not conspicuously glamorous. And this is the call on Paul's life, and it's the call on ours. This is just not about people in pastoral ministry. All of us have been called to the ministry of reconciliation. You say, man, that must be just an incredibly difficult life to persevere through, and that's kind of the third thing I want us to see, that these people live lives marked with perseverance. We see that of the church at Ephesus. That's even what Jesus says of the church when we just read in Revelation 2. Where do they learn that from? Well, certainly they learned it through Paul, and Paul just kept pointing them to Jesus. Look at verse 22. <clears throat> and now compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem. Not knowing what will happen to me there, I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. In The verse we just read, however, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race. It's incredible. Paul's life is worked with, marked with perseverance. It's incredible that the church in Ephesus under such extreme persecution, what is said of them is that they persevered. Listen, a lot of people start well, but there are very few that finish well. In the parable of the seeds, Jesus talked about this. There's a lot of times the seed goes in and, man, it springs up quickly with joy, but has shallow roots. The cares of this world scorch it out. Many people start well, but they don't persevere to the finish. They're like one-hit Christian wonders. They're here today and gone tomorrow. And I wonder often as a pastor, man, where'd those people go? They had such great joy and fervor for the Lord. They were doing such great things for Him. But somewhere along the way, and I'm not saying they're not believers because I believe many of them are, but somewhere along the way, something wounded them so deeply that they put down their bag of seed. And they became spectators instead of players. J.D. Greer, a pastor and author, identified three things that often keep people from finishing strong. The first, he says, is pain. The people you're ministering to don't appreciate it. Maybe God's not rewarding you with the success that you envisioned. It's easy to quit. Especially when it comes to people. When you've invested your life in other people who don't appreciate it or... Appreciate it for the moment until you confront them with the true word of God and they try to kill the messenger. It hurts so deeply that many people don't recover and Paul had experienced that. He'd been taken advantage of, forgotten about, betrayed, ripped off. Jesus experienced that. How many times that Jesus had thousands of followers and then he would bring this truthful message. You think about in John 6 where everybody gathered around him. They wanted more and more and more and he gave this really hard truth and it says they all left except for the disciples. Jesus even asked the disciples, hey, uh, you want to leave too? You remember, where do we have to go? We've already gave everything up to follow you. Remember Peter, the one that he had entrusted to be the rock of the church denying him three times. One of his closest friends, Judas, of course, betrayed him. And there Jesus hangs on the cross, very well aware of what's going on, and there's none of his followers are there except his mom, a few of the ladies, and John. Can you imagine the feeling of betrayal? Why Jesus had invested his life into us, And literally had given his life, is giving his life on the cross for us, for our behalf. And yet, his followers, most of his disciples, are nowhere to be seen. It'd be pastoral malpractice, not to mention that sometimes pain makes people want to give up. Or maybe it's fatigue, the sense that it's just not working, no one is listening. I sense that in Paul's life too, his sermon sometimes ended and a few people agreed to hear him further on this matter and sometimes it ended up with everyone trying to kill him. When you live your life on mission for God, when you live your life on a rescue ship as we like to call it here, sometimes you fall in, sometimes you get wet, sometimes you burn out, but there's no reason to give up. Take some time to get well. Find out what rhythms of your life need to be readjusted. Get healthy, get rested, but don't jump off the boat. Why in the world would you jump off a rescue boat when it's those people who are here to provide rescue in the first place? But in every one of those situations, Paul keeps going. He tells his congregation in 1 Corinthians 15 to be steadfast and unmovable. You know this verse, always abounding in the work of the Lord because their labor is not in vain. Even when it doesn't look like things are working, the God who brought resurrection work out of Jesus will bring resurrection out of yours. The third reason, quickly, J.D. lists a list for people who don't persevere, finish well, is divided hearts. I'm not going to go into this deeply. This is some of the things that Weston, again, talked about last week. This divided heart, on one side you want to complete the assignment that Jesus gave you. You want to be found faithful, but on the other, something else is pulling at your heart. I want to follow Jesus, but I also love comfort. So I don't want to follow him there or follow him in that. I want to do what Jesus says, but I also want to live here. I want to own that. So no to Jesus for now. I want to follow Jesus, but I want to be with her. I want to be with him. I can't tell you how many times that I've sat down with couples or individuals and counseling and really it was very black and white what scripture said about what they were pursuing or what they were doing or they were sacrificing their family on the altar of success and advancement or, or, or affairs that had begun, uh, numerous things. And I've had people who claim to follow Jesus look at me in the face and say, you know what, I know the Bible says that, but this is something I really want and I'm going to go chase after that knowing that God's going to forgive me in the end. Such a hard heart. That's a divided heart. Those people with divided loves very often finish well. Very often do not finish well. Paul says here, none of these things move me. I just want to finish well. I want to hear well done. I don't need your approval. I live for an audience of one, 1 Thessalonians 2, 4. I don't need your money. God has promised to supply every one of my needs in Christ Jesus. Again, here in verse 34, he says that. I don't need to give myself to pleasure because in his presence is the fullness of joy. Isn't that what the psalmist says? Paul didn't want to just start well. He wanted to finish well. He wanted to persevere I feel like this is the biggest thing that I want to teach my kids right now. Don't just start it. I want you to finish it. There's something that needs to be built in the character of our kids as well as us as parents. We need to finish well. Two more quickly. Their lives were marked by love and obedience to God's word. And this is the phrase that has been on my mind and heart Really, since we started the book of Acts. Verse 27, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Maybe you're saying the whole counsel of God. He goes on in verse 28, keep watch over yourselves and for all the flock. Remember, he's talking to the elders of Ephesus, which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. That's a word that's synonymous with pastor, overseer. What an incredible picture that Paul gives. Teaching the whole counsel of God, not just the parts that are fun. And the attitude in which he did it, or the posture in which he took, warning each of you night and day with tears. My dad was a pastor... Uh, he passed away uh, almost two years ago now. I remember as a little kid, almost every, my mom is in here and, and sister could attest to this, almost every message that he preached, he would wrap up kind of toward the end and <clears throat> he would get visibly shaken up. He would begin to cry. As a kid, I was always kind of embarrassed by that, seeing. You know, our culture says a manly man is not supposed to get up there and cry, but he would just weep. As I've been a pastor eight years or so. I'm starting to clue in, that's one of the most godly things that you can do for someone is to weep over them. To care so much about their souls. To care so much about their joy. That they would seek their joy From the presence of God and not all the things the world has to offer, that it would bring you even to tears. This is what Paul says of them, that he warned them day and night with tears. What is this whole counsel of God and why is it so important? But certainly not all of Scripture. There's no way that Paul had time to exegete the entire truth of Scripture. It was all the principles of truth, everything that makes up a systematic theology that Paul taught them. This is the whole counsel of God. It was from this verse as we started our church, and not saying that our church is perfect by any means, Just be with us very long. You're going to find out we got as many faults as anyone else. But we wanted to teach Scripture. We wanted to make much of what Scripture made much of. It's so easy to divert your attention and teach what's easy to teach. So we made a commitment early on that we were going to walk through books of the Bible, the good, easy, and the hard parts. We actually started our church. The very first sermon that we preached was Ephesians 1. You can tell what kind of controversy, if you know, the verse might have come from that. But teaching the whole counsel of God, in order to do that, it takes teachers and leaders that know and study the whole counsel. It takes a commitment by leadership to preach and teach to the principles of Scripture in a systematic way, but it also takes people who want to learn and follow the ways of God. It takes people who want to follow him as he reveals himself through his word. Again, Paul doesn't want them to know this just so that they're good theologians. No, he says that I taught you the the whole counsel of God so that it might protect you from heresy. It might protect you from the wolves from both outside and inside that might seek to lead you astray. This is what God's word does to us, that it, it leads us if we'll let it. It reads us more than we read it. And if you're committed to follow the way of God as revealed through Scripture, emphasize or enlighten to your heart through the Holy Spirit, you'll learn that the Lord will lean into you and press on you and shape you and mold you, and he'll do this through his word. Listen, you can't trust your feelings here. Your feelings will betray you. Your feelings is normally a response to your flesh, isn't it? How many of you just woke up excited today to come gather, right? How many of your kids woke up today excited to gather with your faith family? How many mornings do you just wake up with a spring in your step to digest, ingest, and digest God's Word? What we feel mostly is from the flesh. And the desires that creep up in our own life, in our soul, they better be informed by the scriptures or we're going to be in a lot of trouble. Proverbs tells us that there's a way which seems right unto man, but the end thereof is the way of death. I liked our scripture memory verse that Jason mentioned earlier, 2 Timothy 3.16, that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, For training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Again, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this is Paul writing this to Timothy, who is pastoring this very church in Ephesus. What just happened? Timothy heard from Paul that the word of God is going to correct you. That's never pleasant. That it's going to rebuke you. That God's going to engage you by saying, no, not this way. I want you to go this way. Or listen, you totally blew that. Listen, come back to me. You're doing that all wrong. Through the word, we have reproof and correction and training so that God equips us. This is what the word of God does. Again, we could have a whole entire sermon just on this one idea of the whole counsel of God. This is why it's important for you to read through scripture. This is why we, we try to uh, inform and uh, encourage you to to read, all of, uh, to read through the Bible. Some of you may be on a yearly plan to read through Scripture, and that's good if you can take it in in a year. Um, I'm normally on a kind of a, a two-year section because I get caught up in these verses, and I like to think about them and, and let them meditate on them. But this is good for us that we would be exposed to the whole counsel of God. It shouldn't surprise you when you come across things if you read in such a way in the Bible that make you go, oh, oh, I really don't want to do that. And what happens in that moment is you decide who has ultimate authority in your life. Is it you or God? Are you committed to learning, knowing, and obeying the whole counsel of God? Here are seven questions I want to throw up on the screen for you to reflect one at a time. You don't have to write these down. I'll, I'll post these as a, send them out of the email or something. First, what priority does the Bible hold in my personal schedule? Reading, memorizing, praying the truths of scripture. Two, am I involved in a church? Well, I will learn the whole counsel of God on which to build my life. Three, if I stumble spiritually, are there people in my life who will hold me accountable to what I say I believe? Four, if I'm overwhelmed with sorrow, will the people in my life comfort me with godly counsel from Scripture instead of just self-help things? Number five, am I committed to living the truth If I'm in a situation that evolves in such a way that it's not pleasing to the Lord, am I committed enough to the truth from the whole counsel of God to speak up for what's right? Six, do those who know me agree that God's word is the source of my wisdom for decisions and choices that I make? And seven, do I have an immovable commitment to God's truth as the primary resource for my whole life? Knowing the whole counsel of God is not just the job of a pastor or leader or teacher. It's the responsibility of every committed follower of Jesus to know it, to apply it, and to share it. Here's the fifth thing quickly. I'm out of time. These people's lives were marked by laying down of personal preferences. This might be the most gripping scene in the passage. Verse 36. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and he prayed with them all, the Ephesian elders. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all, because of the word that he had spoken that he would not, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Certainly in the life of Paul, and later in the life of these very leaders of the church at Ephesus, this would be true. Their lives were marked by the laying down of their personal preferences. Paul knew what he was walking into, right? He told us that in verse 23, except the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city, not just once, that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But Paul was willing to lay aside his own personal preferences to do what God had called him to do. We had some youth workers at the church we formerly served at in uh, Dallas, and they felt called by God to go into the mission field. They were going to Southeast Asia, where they had uh, visited a few times, and God had stirred their heart to give their life to this. These, this was a high school basketball coach, and uh, his wife was a stay-at-home mom. They had no seminary education. They just really loved the Lord. They felt God moving in their heart. Brian and Gina, I remember it was on a Sunday night that they had gotten up, and their testimony moved me so much in my heart. She's up there just weeping. We're going to have a garage sale the next week to sell everything that they owned. Everything. She's given this testimony about how God's working in her life, and it's hard to distinguish what she's even saying through the tears. This verse from Psalms kept coming back up and up. She said, as I would pray and weep and mourn, leaving the life that I knew, not to us, O oh Lord, but unto you be all the glory. Not to us, not to us. Such a beautiful picture of what a life submitted to God can look like. Not saying that God's leading all of us into some foreign mission field, but He is leading all of us that claim to be a follower of Christ to follow Him every day. And we should wake up with that word on our lip, not to us, O oh Lord, not to us. But unto you. Where's God leading you? Not where do you want to go? We're going to take communion as we close, and this is just such a phenomenal picture of the gospel to us. The example that we see in Jesus, as we learn about in Philippians that he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he took on the form of a servant. communion is a reminder again and again of Christ's death for our life and then our death for the lives of others as we die to ourselves. I'm gonna pray for us in a minute and uh, I'm gonna ask you to respond as God leads you. My heart was really captured by the song we sang earlier, I Wanna See Jesus Lifted High. And I think about what would it look like if every one of us in this room would live tomorrow and the next week and the rest of our life with that as our anthem. The words say, though I may suffer for a while, I have a hope that's undefiled. I see in part, but not the whole. I know this world is not my home. Let me say a prayer for us. God, thank you for the truth of your word. I pray these last few minutes that we're together as we take communion and respond to you, I pray as you're leading your people even now, Lord, that you would speak very clearly to them about what needs to change in their life, for them to have a life of repentance and faith. Lord, I want to thank you for the example that you provided for us through a person like Paul, but ultimately... His life was just pointing us to you. God, would you do something incredible in our hearts and lives as we submit to you, broken, weary, through trials and tears, as Paul says. We would give our life back to you as an offering. Say, God, use us as you will. In Jesus' name we pray. If you're visiting with us today, you don't have to be a member of our church to participate in communion. Scripture does say you need to be part of God's church. And so if you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, want to be obedient to him, then you're certainly welcome to join in communion. And we'll just give you time. and You come when you're ready. I'll be in the back if you'd like to pray with someone.